Any of you read the Yakum Herald yesterday? You, uh, I don't know if you read the, if you get the paper. Paper's kind of a dying industry. I always read it online, so I had to get this from my father-in-law, but I did get a copy of it. Uh, there's a great article about Restoration Church um, in there. It really, really was a good article overall. I think as you look through it and you read it, it was very clear that we're about Jesus. And uh, what's interesting is they interviewed for this, they interviewed us for this article almost two months ago. So it's been some time since they came and talked to us. They, they came and asked a bunch of questions. I think we met for over an hour. Uh, I know a few uh, of you in here today were able to meet with the reporter. But it's interesting, it sometimes happens over the course of time, as time goes along, you know, some of the facts become a little bit blurry. Some of the truth gets a little bit distorted just because, you know, time has gone by and your memory isn't as good. And if you read this story, you may have noticed a couple of discrepancies. Uh, if you read the article, it says that Nate Montgomery leads the worship team, which is true. Um, but the article also said that uh, Jim Herring and Rob Caldwell are also on the worship team. Now, now let me say, Jim and Rob, man, they love God. They love to worship and praise God. But I kind of put them in the same category as I put myself. You see, it's by God's mercy that we don't sing on the worship team. God is extending mercy to every one of you. You see, I sing. But the problem is I don't sing on one key. I sing on all the keys. I remember when I was growing up, I was friends with the choir director's son. And one day the choir director's son comes up to me and he says, Hey, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Kevin. Hey, my mom wants you to sing a solo. I'm kind of like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I got this. Oh, Yeah. Yes, because my mom wants you to sing so low that nobody hears you. Ah. <laughs> it, it, it was an important time for me to learn something. I, I learned at that moment that if you don't sing good, sing loud. If you don't sing good, sing loud. God doesn't care what our praise sounds like. He just wants our praise. And so Rob and Jim, God has called them to other parts of the church. And praise God for that. Praise God for you guys for God doing that. The, uh, another interesting bit from this article was the last line. Um, it's really actually a really good line. It was good. But the line quoting Restoration's uh, goofy pastor, this is what it says. It says, we keep coming back to Jesus. People change through Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're black, brown, or blue. Jesus is still the answer. Now, I don't know if the pastor really said black, brown, or blue. If I remember right, I thought that the pastor said, it doesn't matter if you are black or brown or blue or white. Jesus is still the answer. I just don't know where the blue came from. Maybe, you know, maybe this is God's prophecy for Restoration Church. Maybe we are being called to reach the Smurf village. Maybe we need to go knocking on the mushroom house doors and reach the blue people. And you talk about multi-ethnicity and diversity. Imagine if we had blue, man, this would be the epitome of diversity. Am I right? (laughs) Who'd have figured? But this is just a good reminder that as time goes by, sometimes things get cloudy. Sometimes as time goes by, our view becomes fogged up. We don't see clearly as we once remember. So I want to take this opportunity as you look at this article and how some of these 
facts were a little bit distorted. Not in a bad way. The article is a great article. I really think it did a good job at kind of proclaiming what we're about. But I want to remind us of what we're about. Because so easily, it's so easy for the clouds to roll in. And us to forget why we are here. Why Restoration Church exists. So I'm going to take an opportunity to remind us of why we're here. Our vision is that restoration, that this would be a place of diversity. Where, a place where people from all walks of life can come and be unified through Jesus Christ. Regardless of our ethnic background. Regardless of our economic differences. Regardless of all of the earthly things that divide us. That we can come together and be uni- united under Jesus Christ. That is what we're aiming for. We want to be a church that isn't necessarily known by how big we are. That isn't known by how great our programs are. That isn't known by how great our worship team is. That we be a church that is known by our unity. That we can set aside our earthly differences and come together and worship and follow and serve a God who loves every one of us. Whether we're black, brown, blue, or white. That God loves and saves every one of us the same way. Our mission here at Restoration Church is to know Christ and to make Christ known. That is why we are here. That is our purpose. That is the reason we come together. That's why we planted Restoration Church 12 weeks ago. It's so that every one of us would come to know Jesus And not just know Jesus like you would say, well, I know LeBron James. I've seen him play basketball on TV. I know LeBron. No, we're talking about really knowing God, really knowing Jesus Christ, having a personal saving relationship with him. And then not only that we would know him, but then we go and take that knowledge of Christ. and We make him known to the world around us. We make him known as being a loving God, a God full of grace and mercy who will forgive us of the greatest depths of our sin. That's the God that we're supposed to then make known to the world around us. Man, this mission and vision is so important for us because as we've talked over the past couple of weeks, it's so easy for us to become distracted. We get distracted on, on things and we say, well, we need to work on, on, on a building. We need to build a building. Oh, we need to build all these different things. No, we need to stay focused on what God has called us to do. And that is to know Christ, to make Christ known. One of the ways that we're going to do that is we're going to open up God's word. We're going to come together and say, God, would you reveal yourself to us? Can you help us to know, uh, know you deeper? So we're going to open up God's word today. We're going to be in the book of Jonah if you uh, don't have a Bible, if you want to put your hand up, if you put your hand up, we'll get a, we've got an usher in the back that'll bring you a Bible. Uh, we'd love to put that in your hand. Let, 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 let that be our gift to you. Um, if you've got one of these Bibles, Jonah's kind of one of these small books. It's only two pages, so you might miss it if you're flipping through. Uh, if you've got one of these Bibles, it's on page 658. Um, if you don't have one of these Bibles, it'll be on a different page. You can go ahead and turn to 658, but you won't find it. One of the cool things that God did when he gave us God's word is, is he uh, put in this thing called this table of contents. And if you're saying, man, I don't know where Jonah is, turn to the first couple pages of your Bible. It'll tell you exactly where Jonah is. I encourage you to turn there. As you're turning there, let me quickly recap where we've been the last couple weeks to set up the stage for our text today. Last week, we read about Jonah's response to God's call in his life. God had told Jonah, he said, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria. Uh, And we understood that Assyria was one of Israel's arch enemies. 
And so Jonah was to go to Nineveh, and he was to preach God's message to them. Then last week, we saw that Jonah, he didn't really like what God was asking of him. He didn't really like God's plan. So Jonah ran. Jonah bought a ticket on a ship headed for Tarshish, which is about as far away from Nineveh as he could get. So Jonah ran, and we talked about how he was looking for freedom. Freedom so that he could do his own thing. Freedom so he could be his own boss, so he wouldn't actually have to be nice and to love his enemies, and he wouldn't actually have to be changed by God. But God, out of love for Jonah, God intervened, and he sent a great storm, a devastating storm that put the ship at risk of sinking. And it was all as an intervention to try and bring Jonah's back to God. But Jonah still wouldn't relent. And, and it came to the point that Jonah told the sailors to throw him overboard, to throw him and let him drown in the sea. So Jonah, who ran from God so he could be free to do his, his own thing, he was more enslaved than ever and depressed. And he was ready to die. He said, throw me overboard and just let me drown. And the sailors, they tried one last ditch attempt. Man, we got to save this guy. We got to row this boat. We got to get this boat back to dry land. But they realized it's futile. We can't do it. So they relented and they threw Jonah overboard. And that's where our story picks up, to, up today. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the opportunity we're going to have right now to open up your word. To be able to read your story. To read in Jonah. Lord, and I pray as we, we read and we study today, I pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you would draw us to you. God, that you would put the distractions out of our mind and that you would speak to every one of us clearly. Lord, we open ourselves to you. And God, we ask that you give us hearts to hear today. We ask this in your name. Amen. So we're in Jonah chapter 1. We're going to start uh, with verse 17, and then we're going to move on to Jonah chapter 2. Read this with me. <clears throat> and it says, and the, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. That's God's word for us today. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at four points that we will see from this, from this prayer of Jonah's. Uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll try and conclude this and try and uh, apply this to how this fits to our lives today. First thing I want you to see, number one for us today, is I want you to understand it's not about the fish. 
It's not about the fish. When we read this, we read verse 17, and it sounds so awesome. It sounds, you hear the story of this guy, and he gets thrown overboard, and, and he's sinking to the bottom of the sea. And this great fish comes and swallows him up. And he's in there for three days and three nights. I mean, this is really a great story. And, and, and it's fascinating. We, we, we want to look at this story and we want to understand how did this happen. I mean, God's word says it was a great fish. And you and I, we probably read the, the, the stories growing up and it was always a whale. And we want to understand, was it a whale? Was it a fish? Was it a shark? What kind of fish was it was? And these kids that are moving up, they want to say, I want to know. This sounds interesting. This is good. So we can look at the story and we can say, well, most likely it was a sperm whale. I mean, you look at, you look at a sperm whale, it's big enough and has a big enough mouth that it can swallow a manhole. And there's been stories of fishermen who have experienced this same thing. They've been thrown into the ocean, into the sea, and they've been swallowed by a sperm whale. And there's stories of this actually happening. And see, we could go through and we could discuss this, but the thing is, this story really isn't about the whale. The whale gets all the attention, and we love talking about the whale, and, and the story when you hear John, it's, oh, it's about the whale. But really, this passage here is not about the whale. It's not about the whale. See, I think we miss the point if we solely focus on what's going inside of this great fish. The deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet. See, the story is not about the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. The story isn't about physical survival. It's about spiritual survival. So verse 1 of chapter 2 sets the stage for us. It says that Jonah prays to God from the belly of the fish. See, the focus of this passage, it isn't the fish. It's Jonah. It's on the change. It's on what God is doing in Jonah's heart. And that's what we read from this prayer. We read what God is doing in Jonah's heart. We will read about Jonah's repentance and his surrender to following God. And I want us to understand it's not about the fish. It's about Jonah's heart. It's about Jonah's repentance. We need to understand that as we go through this, the fish is great and the fish is fun and we can have some fun with it. But it's not about the fish. Second thing I want to point out this morning that you'll see from this text is, number two, is Jonah's hitting rock bottom. Jonah is... He's about to hit rock bottom. If you read through this, this, this text, you look at verses 2 through 7. You see this pattern, this, this descending of Jonah into the depths of the sea. Look at this progression of Jonah. Verse 3 says that Jonah is in the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around him, and the waves were crashing over him. See, Jonah begins, and he's saying, this is what it was like when I was on the surface of the sea. I'm on the surface of the water. The waves are crashing over me. I'm swirling around in the current. And then he continues. Verse 4 describes him as being in the midst of the sea. And it says, while he was sinking, he feels banished by God's presence. God, banished from God's presence. Yet he looks forward to God's presence again. Verse 5 describes him as near the bottom of the sea. He says, there's seaweed wrapped around my head. You see this progression of Jonah. He is sinking and sinking and sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. Verse 6 describes that he is nearly drowning. At the bottom of the sea, where the mountains, the roots of the mountains are, the very bottom. Verse 7 says that his life was fainting away. This means he was beginning to lose consciousness. He was going to die. And do you see the distress and the tremble that Jonah is in? 
You see, Jonah had turned his back on God. He said, God, I don't want to do things your way. I want to do things my way. I want to do things the way that I feel good to me and that make it easier on me. And God, I'm, I'm just going to do things my way. And he turned his back on God. <laughs> he resisted God's opportunities that he gave him to repent. And now Jonah is in the deepest, darkest place he could imagine. He's finally hit rock bottom. And, and when he finally hits rock bottom, this leads to point number three for us. Jonah finally surrenders to God. Jonah finally, in the depths of the sea, when he's hit rock bottom, finally he relents. Finally he surrenders. Verse 7 says, the bottom of the sea, as his life was slipping away, he remembered the Lord. He remembered the Lord. Now, understanding this term of remembering the Lord has, has huge implications for us. This isn't just a, a, an idea of remembering what he forgot. It's not like he just forgot who God was. Oh, I remember him now. It, it carries so much deeper than that. Remembering God was supposed to be Israel's most important responsibility. The implications for Israel and for Jonah to remember the Lord were much deeper than just remembering. Moses, one of Israel's great leaders of the past, he gave Jonah's people instructions in Deuteronomy 8 to remember the Lord your God. It means, remembering God means to truly uh, know God, to acknowledge him for who he is. It means that we turn from making ourselves the God of our lives and from living as though we can do whatever we want to do. It means that we recognize that God is the one who's in control. That God is the one who's in control. That he is more wise and he is more powerful and he is more capable and he is more right than we can ever be. It means that Jonah, who's been trying to run away from the presence of God, when he remembered the Lord, he was now returning to God's presence. Jonah was finally turning back to God. He's surrendering to God. God had sent him into the depths of the sea in order for Jonah to finally repent. It wasn't necessary that Jonah had to go into the, the deepest and darkest depths of the sea. It wasn't necessary that Jonah had to hit rock bottom. God was chasing Jonah the entire story. God was, was extending him mercy in the storm, waiting for an opportunity for Jonah to turn back. But Jonah just said, no, man, I want to do things my way. I want my freedom. I want to be my own God. I want to do my own thing. But when Jonah remembered the Lord and returns to God's presence at the bottom of the sea, it says, verse 2 says that he cried out in desperation. In distress, he cries out to God, and God hears and answers his cry. Jonah, in the depths of the sea, if he's remembered the Lord, he cried out to God, and God hears and answers that cry. This is point number four for us, that God hears and answers Jonah's cry. When Jonah cries out from the belly of Shoal, in verse 2, this refers to the pits of hell, the deepest and darkest place that Jonah could imagine. When Jonah cries out, God hears that cry. Jonah is so amazed that as he's crying out to God and God answers, he repeats it again in verse 2. He says, he says God, first you, you answered me and now you hear me. And in verse 4, verse 6, he repeats the same thing. He is amazed that where he is, that God still will hear 
and answer his cry. This was God extending his mercy and love to Jonah. It didn't matter that Jonah was guilty of running away from God. It didn't matter that Jonah was close to death and the circumstances seemed impossible. God heard and answered Jonah's cry. As we talked about the book of Jonah, one of the themes that I wanted to be sure that we highlight throughout the book of Jonah was the character of God. So we could have a proper understanding of who he is. So we could truly know who he is. And I want you to miss this. I want you to know that God hears and answers our cries. He's not some distant God who's off playing Candy Crush on his phone in the midst of our trials and circumstances. I knew somebody would get a kick out of that. He's not off, he's not some distant God who's, who's oblivious to what's going on. Now, he loves us so much, and he has paid such a huge sacrifice to have a relationship with us, to have a relationship with you and I. He gave up the life of his only son. He made that sacrifice so that you and I could have a relationship with him. And if he's made that kind of a sacrifice to have just a relationship with us, that he absolutely is going to be there to hear how to answer our cries. He's not oblivious to them. He's waiting for us to cry out to him. Your anguish that you are experiencing, your distress, your trials, it might be like Jonah. You might be like Jonah. You, maybe you've done something, then you've brought this on yourself because you've turned your back on God. And you've done your own thing. And you, you haven't relented and, and surrendered to God. Maybe you're like Jonah. Maybe you've brought this onto yourself. Or maybe your anguish and your distress and your trials, maybe there's something like Job. Job was the guy who loved and served God, yet there were hard times and trials placed on his lap, not as a result of sin, but of Satan. Whatever storms you're facing, if we will remember the Lord and seek his presence, he will hear and answer our cries. I'm not saying that God is going to change all the hard circumstances in your life. God may not send a great fish to rescue you from drowning. <laughs> but what the important thing is that God will respond. And in God's sovereignty, he might just carry you along through the hard times instead of sending the great fish to rescue you. Whether he sends a big fish or not, we need to acknowledge that God is a God who hears and answers our cries. Now look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Jonah concludes his prayer with our last point which is Jonah's thanksgiving and praise. It says in verses 8 and 9, it says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's repentance is turning back to God and surrendering himself to God has produced the proper result. Jonah is filled with thanksgiving and praise. That's what this psalm is all about. Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish is all about praising God. It's all about thanksgiving because God answered. When Jonah called, God answered. Jonah is now experiencing the steadfast love of God. He's being filled with God's unfailing mercy and loving kindness. And he is acknowledging that through his own experiences in verse 8 when he talks about the idolaters. He's saying, that was me. I was one of those idolaters. I put other things in the place of God. And when you do that, 
when you put other things in front of God, there's no reason to expect God's unfailing love. Jonah's saying, when I was an adulterer, when I was doing my own thing, when I was putting myself before God, man, we, don't expect, we, we can't expect God's unfailing mercy and love. Well, we've, we, it goes a little further. An idol is, something, is anything that we have that takes the place of God. So Jonah is saying that whenever you or I or him, whenever we put something else in the place of God and turns away from God like Jonah did, then they essentially are turning away from God's unfailing love and his steadfast mercy. He's saying that God is not any less merciful. God is not any less loving. But that when we turn from God, we're turning from his grace. We're turning from his love. We're turning from his mercy. In response to what God has done in Jonah's life, Jonah responds to his deliverance, much like how the sailors responded to their deliverance in the first chapter of Jonah. God had delivered the sailors from the first storm, from the fierce storm. So they made a sacrifice to God and they made vows to God. And now as God has delivered Jonah from the depths of the sea, Jonah offers his thanksgiving as a sacrifice. He makes a vow. Here Jonah comes to God not as a prophet, not as someone who has earned or deserved special privileges from God, but he's coming before God as a sinful human who's just like you and I. He came as somebody who needed grace. Jonah's conclusion is a statement of praise when he says salvation belongs to the Lord. This thought was a comfort for Jonah, and it should be a comfort for us as well, because salvation does not depend on you and I. Salvation does not depend on you and I being good people, on doing the right things, on doing more good things than bad things. It doesn't depend on us. Salvation belongs to God. It depends on him, on his love, on his mercy. Now, I want to tie this together. We've kind of gone through this, and, and, and I want to tie this together so we understand this prayer and, and this story of what's going on in Jonah's life. There's two final thoughts that tie this together. The first deals with every one of us in here today and our need for the gospel and our need to understand the gospel on a deeper level. You see, there's a lot of people in our churches today who assume that the gospel is something that non-Christians must believe in order to be saved. And w- but once we believe it, then we advance to deeper theological waters. We're done with the gospel now because we're saved. Now we can move on to deeper things. We're done with the gospel at that point unless we're telling somebody else about it. But the truth is, however, that once God rescues us as sinners... His plan isn't isn't to steer us away from the gospel. But rather, God's plan is to steer us more deeply into it. Because, after all, the only antidote to sin, the only antidote to sin is the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice he made on the cross. And since Christians remain sinners after we are converted, the gospel must be the medicine that we take in every day. This is why I love the story of of Jonah, because he represents you and I. We talked about one of the themes of Jonah is that I am Jonah. You and I are Jonah. We are just like him. As we read his thoughts, as we read his actions, we see ourselves in that because we do those same things. We have those same thoughts. And as you look at the story, Jonah needs forgiveness. 
Jonah needs to repent. He needs God's mercy just as much as the sailors did. He needs the gospel just as much as Nineveh did. Jonah needs to repent of himself and surrender his will and his thoughts and his plans and his desires to God. He needs to receive God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, just like every one of us do. And that's why I love the the story of Jonah, because we see every one of us, we need to come back to repentance. We need to come back to the point of, God, I can't do this on my own. Oh, I understand the gospel. But God, I need to receive it again. I need to be reminded of how much you sent, how much you sacrificed for me. Because we do that. We, we understand the gospel. We, we were saved. We're Christians. But how quickly we get diverted from that. How quickly we become stubborn. Just like Jonah did. And we have to repent. We have to surrender and come back to him. My prayer for each of us in here is that each week when we come and we work through God's word, that we don't just come and hear a nice sermon every week, but that we would come and that we would let God probe and press into our hearts and that we would honestly look into ourselves and see the beauty and the wonder of the gospel of Christ, that he loves us and pursues us even in our rebellion so that we would come back and we would rest only in him. Do you see that in Jonah? Our need, even as believers, to come back and receive his forgiveness. Because we are, we are perfect. Even as Christians, we still have to come back and surrender. To bring this to the close, the last thing I want to share. Something I've been thinking about since last week. We discussed last week how Jonah ran away from God because he was looking for freedom. He figured that by turning his back on God that he'd be free to do whatever he wanted to do, and he wouldn't have to obey God anymore. He could be self-dependent, self-reliant. He would experience true freedom by not having to follow God's rules and God's plan. But as we studied Jonah running away from God, we've seen there wasn't much freedom for, for Jonah in running from God. He actually seemed pretty miserable when he ran. On the ship to Tarshish, Jonah was sulking, depressed, so he went down to the bottom of the ship, sleep during the chaotic storm. And when he was revealed for having run away from God, he decided that it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea. It would be better for him to die and drown in the sea than it would be for him to surrender to God and to repent. You don't see much freedom in Jonah's running from God. And this is true in real life. We live as though our lives depend on us. We live as though our children, they depend on us in order to be successful. We live as though our finances that will only survive in this economy if we make it happen. Our relationships, our careers, our happiness, they all depend on us. And this is the way we live. For the students, we live as though our grades only depend on how hard we work. And if we work hard enough, if we do enough, if we make only the right decisions, then things will work out and they'll work out perfectly according to what God has for us. But you see, there's no freedom in that. There's no freedom in us saying our life depends on us. That really leads to slavery, just like Jonah. But here in chapter 2, do you see the freedom that Jonah is experiencing? Do you see the freedom that Jonah experiences in chapter 2? See, there's one thing I haven't mentioned about this chapter yet that I'm struck by. See, you and I, we know the rest of the story. 
We know that Jonah is going to get spit up by the fish and that he'll go to Nineveh and he'll preach God's message to the Ninevites. But the thing is, when Jonah is praying this prayer, Jonah doesn't know what's going to happen. Jonah does not know that the fish is going to spit him out on the dry land. He doesn't know that God is going to deliver him from the great fish. Yet Jonah is expressing a crazy freedom, a relief from slavery of bo- and bondage of himself. And he's able in the, 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 the fish, in the belly of the fish, wondering, am I going to die in this fish? He's able to experience immense freedom, and he's able to praise God and worship God in complete freedom. He's still facing adversity and distress, but he is free through his relationship with God. See, I want to be free. I want to experience true and genuine freedom. I want to raise my kids, and I want to love my wife, and I want to plant this church in freedom. I want to be free. But see, knowing that if I am surrendered to God, if I'm loving my wife the way that God tells me to do it, If I am raising my kids the way that God's word tells me to do it, if I am doing it God's way, when the hard times come, when the adversity comes, when the storms come, and they do, the storms come. If I'm doing it God's way, then there is a freedom in knowing that God is responsible for the outcome and not me. There is a freedom in saying, I am not responsible for making this happen. I'm responsible to be true and genuine with God. And then God is responsible for the outcome. I was at an anniversary party for my in-laws yesterday. They spent their, today is their 40th anniversary. Such a great testimony to a young doofus like me. But one of the things my father-in-law said is he said, you know, he's given a little speech and he, he said, you know how we've done this for 40 years? We did it God's way. Well, we had our trials, and we had to come back to God's word and say, God, what do you say? How are we supposed to do this? And that's where freedom comes in. That is where freedom comes in. I mean, I want the freedom from, from shame and guilt and anger and, 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 and all these things that we feel. If you want that freedom, it comes only through God. Because when we run and we try to do things our own way, we try to make it about ourselves, it leads to slavery. At least to shame, at least to anger, at least to where Jonah was, where he was in the depths of the sea. He was in depression. He was at rock bottom. But when he surrendered to God, when he repented and returned to the Lord, he's able to experience freedom even in the midst of this trial, even in the belly of the fish. He experiences freedom. That's the freedom I want. That's the freedom I want to live in. And that's the freedom I want every one of us to experience. That we can come before God and we can be completely free. Not feeling the guilt of shame. Not feeling the remorse. Not feeling the weight of of where we've been. As the worship team comes up, we're going to have an opportunity this morning to respond to God's word.